lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, hello, everybody. Rabbi Mel is here again with you. Um, as I have been for the last couple months, it's good to be back. You know, I I miss it when we're not together. I wish I could see your faces, and I wish you could see my face, but uh, we can't. So you're stuck listening to me and my guest, and I have a wonderful guest uh, on my show. Her name is Emma Broussard. And hi, hi, hi. hi there. How are you? It's good to have you, Emma. Thank you. I'm good, thanks. As you saw, as, as you all saw in the um, listing, Emma is a registered nurse from Houston, Texas. She's been volunteering with hospice patients since 2006, among other the other patients that she sees, and currently works on a medical unit here in town. She has seen patients die, and she has saved patients too. So I invited her because um, I've known her for a few months, not a long time, but she, you'll hear that she's, she, as we used to say in the South, she talks real good (laughs) and we're going to have a good time. So Emma, it's, it's a pleasure to have you with me. Um, Let me start by asking you a question. Which we were talking about before. Uh, not all of your patients come from hospice, right? Oh, yeah, that's correct. What? Well, where do the others? Where do the rest come from? Well, generally, the people I see are very sick, uh, and oftentimes they come to my floor sick and. We may not have them classified as hospice patients uh, per se at that time. Maybe they're family or they are not ready to give up their fights. Uh, but sometimes it turns into such that they're, they start to come to the conclusion that there may not be much else we can do. Um, so they come to us and, and we help let them go. I've always heard that the definition of hospice is when you go from curing to caring. <laughs> That's a pretty good uh, definition. I think that, uh, however, there is a misconception when it does come to hospice. Um, So in the hospital setting, um, many, well, all hospice patients are DNR, which means do not resuscitate. But DNR does not mean do not treat. Uh, so let's say you come in and um, you have something, you know, curable, you know, we'll give you, uh, you know, antibiotics or, uh, you know, we're not going to let you suffer with a simple illness. It just means that we're not going to treat your terminal illness. So if you have cancer, that usually means that we won't be doing any more chemo or radiation. But if you have a cold, we'll definitely help you with that. Right. So the goal is to keep people pain free. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, we want to keep you comfortable for as long as possible. Um, 
you know, and uh, comfort is the main goal. And and then also, I think when you're treating the patient, you're also treating the family uh, because death and dying is hard for everyone. And so, uh, when I think of the patient, I also think of their family and, and friends and who's at the bedside in that moment because we often spend as much time with the family as we do with the patient. Sure. And when you get hospice patients, do you find that their families have given it up? In other words, they've decided it's the life is coming to an end quickly and they're here in hospice and they trust you to take, take care of their loved ones, but they know that they're not going to get any better. Well, so the reactions for that are as varied as probably even more so than Colors of the Rainbow. Uh, some family members are very angry uh, and they're not ready. And, uh, and others are accepting, like you described. And sometimes we'll get a long-lost uh, family member, you know, usually a, a son or daughter that hasn't seen mom or dad in some years. And, uh, and by God, they want them to fight because they want to rekindle this relationship. So everyone is, is different, and uh, you never really know what to expect. So, yeah, sometimes are easier than others. It's interesting. One of the things you just said was that it's usually the son from... Um, halfway across the country who hasn't seen his mother or father who's in hospice in months or years or maybe they have a bad relationship but all of a sudden they come and they want to take over does that does that happen a lot or not so much anymore Hmm. I think I've seen it happen Quite a bit. And uh, I think so, listeners out there, those of you who do not have a will or something written down um, saying what you want and what you don't want, uh, depending on how sick you are, if you only have one child and that child comes in and wants to keep you alive, it doesn't matter, you know, if you didn't write it down. So it's very important to communicate to your family. It makes it a lot easier for the medical staff as well uh, because we end up having to spend days explaining, you know, why we can't save mom, why we're doing everything and that we're just promoting his or her suffering. Uh, So, so yeah, that does happen. Again, kids will be fighting and I often have to remind them, you know, um, you know, he can hear you. Um, So even though he's not conscious right now, he can hear you. Maybe you should take it into the hallway. So yeah, that does, that does happen. I have um, had a guest, well, she, actually, she didn't show up. She forgot. Mm-hmm. But I talked about something called a conversation project. Yes, I've heard of that. Which is precisely what you just talked about, and that is, well, how do I want the end of my life to look? Mm-hmm. And you sit down with your, with anybody, you could do it at 20, couple gets married at 26, they can have this conversation. Now, you could change it anytime you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always think that it's, it, I mean, and you know it's true, that the more you talk about it, the easier it becomes at the end mm-hmm. because there are no loose ends, because you don't have to worry about it. It's hard enough when you've done all the right things, when you've, you know, this is what I want in my, at my funeral service. Uh, this is who I want to talk about me. This is who's going to get my $27, you know, uh, pen, uh, pension. Um, this is who's going to inherit all my money, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Even when that happens, 
even when those details are, are acceptable by the families, I often find that it's the stuff in the heart that has very little to do with things or money or possessions. I remember before you were born, because you're young, I know that, <laughs> and I'm not, but I remember that uh, aunts and aunts would, especially mamas and aunts, would write the name uh, on a piece of sticky tape of who's going to get this lamp. When mm -hmm. I And at the bottom, underneath, where you couldn't see it until they died. Uh, so you gave your stuff away and you... Now, we think that's silly, but it isn't because the details are taken care of. My husband's grandma did that same thing. His beloved grandma wrote everyone's name on the bottom of things around the house. So whenever we go to Grandma Broussard's or Travis tells me, don't pick anything up. He's like, we don't look on the bottom. That's like <laughs> looking at your, you know, at gifts people give you. <laughs> funny. Well, my family hadn't done that for a long time because all my aunts and uncles and grandparents have died and... and um, it's interesting, I think, you know, I, I don't, I have a lot of things in my house. I mean, everybody's got a lot of things in, my, in their house. I don't take pictures a lot. Mm -hmm. My wife takes a lot of pictures. And I ask her the simple question, so when you die, what's going to happen to those pictures? And she says, well, my two sons and the grandchildren, just two grandsons, so they'll get them. So uh, my sister and I laugh a little, a lot because we don't take a lot of pictures because when we die, we don't think anybody's going to want them. What are you going to do with the pictures? You know, I mean, you're going to put them on your coffee table and after you've looked at them and cried seven times, <laughs> so then what are you going to do with them? You're going to end up throwing them away. I mean, I don't know what else you do with pictures and books and things like that. But I guess I'll let my wife take care of that business. Yeah. If she outlives you, I guess we'll just she let her do it. She outlive me. She definitely will outlive oh, me. Oh, okay, good. Oh, and you know, uh, just to go back to what you were saying earlier about the, um, the conversation, uh, I think it's also important to note that many states will not – they will allow your power of attorney to supersede what you have in writing. And so it's not always good enough just to put it in writing. Uh, it's important to talk to all your children, not just one of them. Tell, and in fact, in the law, they call them interested parties. Talk to all interested parties and let them know what you want. And so hopefully they'll listen to you or at least feel a little guilty if they don't. That's important. <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought when you have a when you have a living will, that's it. That's it depends it. on the state. Okay. What about the state we live we live in? What do you, what what's the deal here? I feel like they do allow them to to supersede what they say, but I have to look because I know that uh, I've seen that before. But then we have an ethics committee that will get involved. So. Oh Lord. I know. I'm sorry. So talk to everyone and let them know what you want. My mother tells me, she said, I'll make you my medical power of attorney, but you better not put me on a ventilator. I'm going to come back and haunt you when you let me die. <laughs> so. so what's the point of making you power of attorney then? 
you know, that's that's what I uh, said. Well, I'll always do what she wants, but I think uh, my mother is also a nurse, and and she doesn't want to give me that burden because she was an ICU nurse for many years, so she saw people making these difficult decisions. You know, oftentimes we'll do CPR and bring someone back, but they haven't returned to their baseline. They'll often be unconscious and we still have a machine breathing for them. And then the family has to make the difficult decision to either withdraw care or keep going. Um, And that can be even more difficult, not to mention uh, expensive. Yeah, my listeners have heard me tell this story uh, many times. I grew up in Atlanta And I remember that in all the hospitals in Atlanta, the head nurse was always this wonderful, loving, caring black lady who legitimately cared about all her patients. But she was also very, not but, and she was also a very religious, godly person. And so I remember that she, because of, I like to talk, you know that. No. So, hey, watch it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I brought you on because you're my friend. So, sorry, sorry. I used to go up to these black women and, and we would chat a little bit. And I would say, well, uh, you know what's happening with every patient, right? She said, I got it right here on the screen. They're all hooked up to the screen. And I know when their heart stops and I know when they're gone. So I said, what do you do when that happens? And she said, well, when it happens, now this must be 30 years ago, we had this conversation. She said, when it happens, the bells and whistles go off on the floor. Mm. And all the staff's supposed to go running to the patient to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. I said, is that what really happened? She said, no, it's not. She said, I override those instructions and I say, when God's ready for them, that's it. Hmm. And if they die, they die. They're supposed to die then. She was a very religious believer and she absolutely believed that when your heart stops and your brain's gone, there's nothing left, it's time to cover you up with a sheet and say goodbye and hug you. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess it depends on if they're DNR or not. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true too. I don't, I don't want to. I mean, I want a DNR because if I can't, my wife and I talk about it a lot, and um, I, we have a will. We both have wills, and we both have proxies and all that. And I say, if I cannot talk to people. If I, which I've done my whole life. I mean, I, so I make my living, you know that. Mm-hmm. If I can't talk to people and have decent conversations with people, um, you might as well just pull out the plug if there's a plug or don't you dare put me on a plug. I don't want to be alive because to me, that's not a definition that I would call alive. Now, everybody's got their own definitions, but for me whose life is with other people and talking and listening and counseling and rabbying and all the other things that I do for for others, you know, when I can't do those things, I'm useless. So if I'm useless, you know, get me out of that bed so somebody who needs it worse than I do because 
That's how I feel. I, I know lots of people who are in the final stages of their lives. I went to see one of them today and had a long talk with his wife. And she reminded me that I had once uh, given a sermon about the final stages of life. And I said, you know, if they're sick for a while and they can't uh, navigate themselves and they can't really talk, sometimes you really don't know what to pray for. Mm-hmm. You, don't want to, you don't know whether to pray that God keeps them healthy or to pray that God takes them away. She reminded me today when I went to see them that of uh, that what I said, and she said, it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she didn't want to hurt his, you know, we, he, we were not in his presence, obviously. Mm-hmm. But she said, I just want it to be over. Mm-hmm. I want him to be at peace. I want the family to be at peace. You know, and we really can't be. Mm-hmm. as long as he's in the situation that he's in. It's very sad, but I guess when the body's done, the body's done, you know? You have to let him go, right? But they have caregiver guilt is very common where people say, you know, gosh, I want to get on with my life, but I can't until they die. And that's so awful for them. They feel awful thinking that, but in reality, that's, that's very common. And I think... Uh, Dying is normally either very fast, you know, let's say you get hit by a truck, or it's very gradual. And uh, the gradual death will often give us time for acceptance, but but it can be really hard on the soul because it drags on and on. Right. Okay. We got to stop for a minute. We got a break. So Emma and I will be right back. Don't go away. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. 
To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hello, everyone. So we're back. This is Rabbi Mel. From Morning to Morning, I'm teaching you, I spend my life teaching people that you can go from life loss to a new life, it's possible. That is, when a loved one dies, that's not the end of your world. You may think it is. And the first few months, it will seem like it is, but it's not. My guest is Emma Broussard, who's a nurse in a local hospital, and she has many hospice patients, among others. So during the break, she said that she... I had some uh, facts about actual signs of death. How do you uh, how do you recognize the signs to know when the time is getting closer that your loved one is not going to be with you anymore? So Emma, talk to us. Well, um, a lot of the signs have more to do with what what they're dying from. So if it's heart failure, it'll be different. But uh, some very general ones would probably be uh, as people are reaching the end of their lives, you know, it may even be before they're in the hospital. You might you might find that they're eating less, um, you know, because as the body is kind of winding down um, in preparing to die, uh, the body doesn't really want food and uh, they drink less. So oftentimes in the hospital, we give them IV fluids, uh, uh, but we have to be sure that their kidney function is okay uh, because a lot of times what you see is people are getting IV fluids and they're backing up. Uh, they're backing up in the body, and so they'll get kind of puffy, um, like in their arms or on the IV areas, or they'll have something called third spacing, to where um, the fluid moves into the space outside of the cells, and they get especially puffy, and that can be painful. So, you may see your physician makes the decision to turn off the fluids, um, and that's not because we want to. You know, we're not trying to kill off your loved one. We just don't. Uh, there's really no need for fluids at that point. The body doesn't need them. Uh, and they'll sleep more. Um, they may find that one day they just stay in bed and they nap a lot. Um, I know my own grandfather, my mother, I'll say, how's he doing? She says, well, he's winding down. He's sleeping. Um, and, you know, this could go on for a year or more. He'll just stay in bed and sleep a lot. Um, they'll just be more asleep than awake. Um, and then you'll also see kind of changes in mood or level of consciousness. Um, so that's towards the very end. Uh, sometimes they'll be non-responsive. Uh, or they're just not making sense. Uh, and you know what I saw too uh, when I was volunteering as a respite care worker? People at the very end would talk to people who weren't there. And then finally, their pulse rate increases. Uh, it'll be really beating fast because the heart's electrical and it doesn't realize always that they're dying. The heart just wants to do its job and so it's trying to compensate. Um, and then finally, the heart rate decreases. And um, probably the very last sign, people often ask me, you know, how you know, how long until they die? And, you know, no one has a crystal ball. And I think even the best doctors and nurses can always tell you that. But for me, I I look at the breathing patterns. And so when people start to use what's called accessory muscles uh, to breathe, so you'll see their whole chest moving um, where they're really struggling. Um, And a different part of the brain is giving the signal uh, to breathe uh, because they're not using as much of the brain. And so they'll breathe and they'll kind of open their mouth like a fish. Um, and so that's usually at the very end. So once they start doing the fish out of water breathing, as it's commonly called, uh, you know you're getting pretty close. 
every time I hear those kinds of details, mm-hmm. they don't they don't distress me. They they help me understand better. But I I have this wonderful story that's one of my favorite stories. I was called to a hospital by a wife a long time ago who said, my husband is dying and he's going to die in three days of, I don't know what it was. (laughs) And I didn't know who he was and he wasn't a member of my congregation, but she called me and so I ran over to the hospital and I find, I go to his room and he's sitting up on his pillow in his bed and he's talking to 10 of his friends who are sitting there having a conversation just like you and I are having a conversation I couldn't believe it so I gave the magic phrase uh, I would like to talk to Jack alone please well everybody in the room knew what that was (laughs) what that meant there's no better way to clear a room than to say that when a clergyman comes in and says, I'd like to have a few moments alone with the patient, he gets them quick. <laughs> Somebody leaves and I said, Jack, you know, you look really good. I'm really surprised because your wife called me an hour ago and said you were going to die. He says to me, in three days, I'll be dead. And I said, you don't look like you're going to be dead in three days. He said, I have given strict instructions to give me no food, only liquids, pain meds and liquids, and that's it. And I'll last as long as I'm going to last, but I know enough to know that I'll be gone in three days. Well, guess what? In three days, I was standing over his coffin in the sanctuary doing his funeral. (laughs) It was unbelievable. Oh, and before he died, before I left, he said, how's the weather outside? And I'm wondering... (laughs) Why he really wants to know that. I wanted to ask him, how's the weather inside your heart, my friend? Mm-hmm. But I was, I was just uh, too shocked. Three days later, he died, and, and we buried him. So you do never know. Do you find that people die alone, or they die with family around them? Well, in an ideal world, uh, the family would be around them. Uh, there, I guess I should hearken back to my... So when I began volunteering, uh, I was volunteering with a program called the No One Dies Alone program. And, and that kind of started um, uh, a nurse uh, named, uh, I believe it's Barbara Carnes. Um, she found that she had a patient who was dying. And he said, will you stay with me until I die? And unfortunately, as a nurse in a hospital, that's not always realistic. You know, we can't always stay until they die. Um, And so she said, yes, I will. And then uh, he ended up passing away by himself. And from then on, she said, you know, this is unacceptable. We have to do something. And so she started the No One Dies Alone program, or NODA for short. And so in the hospital where I was working, it was a volunteer program um, for people who wanted, you know, ultimately more patient contact. And so it could be secretaries or uh, pharmacists, you know, people that weren't always on the front lines dealing with patients. And so they worked through um, an email system, and they would send out an urgent email and say, we have a need for a volunteer. 
and uh, and you would sit, you know, in a shift, um, any you know, sometimes four hours, sometimes longer, until they passed away. And so, um, and so, it, this was a very large hospital, and so I mean, we're talking huge. So we couldn't always expect medical staff to stay till they died, and so that was how. I began volunteering was I went and sat with people who were actively dying uh, until they passed so they wouldn't be alone. But, you know, some people do die alone in the ICU. Um, we transfer them there, and, and the patient-to-nurse ratio in the ICU is much lower, but uh, it's sometimes not possible to stay until they die. I've known lots of people who have said to their family, why don't you go downstairs and eat lunch? Yes, yes. And come back. And, and when they walk out the door, the patient dies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've I, seen that before. So, I often wonder about that. I think, I think life and death, I've learned life and death are kind of flexible. Uh, I think that if the body can handle it, you know, if it's not too worn out, a person will hang on and wait for a loved one to arrive. Uh, I heard a story once uh, about a woman who repeatedly told her family, I don't want you sitting here looking at me while I'm dying. you got to get out of here. And so for two or three days, the the child sat at bedside, the adult child sat vigil. And, uh, and finally, finally, um, she said, you know what, I got to go to the cafeteria and get something to eat. And, and so she did. And the woman, as soon as she got on the elevator, the woman passed away. So it's, it's incredible to me that these people can hold on and let go at will, you know, seemingly. Sometimes, though, if there's a family celebration coming up, mm-hmm. you know, they, they hang around until the wedding or the bar mitzvah or the christening or the, or the whatever it's going to be. Because they really want to be with the family. Absolutely. And, and they go to the celebration, and then a week or so later, they die. They allow mm-hmm. themselves, or they will themselves, to stop living. Yep. It's, it is remarkable what we can do. I think so. I think it's, you know, because I've seen people die from really simple things that probably, like, I think, wow, you let yourself die from that. And then there is, you know, other situations where people are beating the odds and you think, wow, how are you still alive? So, oh, and I have to correct myself. The nurse who started the No One Dies Alone program is named Sandra Clark. Barbara Carnes, uh, with a K, was uh, one of the people who first started, you know, really uh, reflections on hospice and working around hospice. So, sorry, Sandra Clark. Right. Is the No One Dies Alone program still around? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so now the program can be implemented at almost any hospital. And so, uh, you know, you can ask, do you have a No One Dies Alone program here? And uh, some of them do. And they have literature uh, that they share because it's, you know, it's kind of a movement. And so, uh, so other hospitals will have it if they're large enough. Do you ever see pets in the room with hospice patients? I do. Uh, So some hospitals don't like pets, um, but I have seen hospitals that they'll allow pets in, you know, as long as they're well-behaved, you know, they're not disturbing other patients or making a mess. I have seen them, and, and oftentimes I feel like, they know that uh, that they're not feeling well or even maybe that they're dying. Uh, and so what happens is, you know, the, the family member will tell me, wow, you know, Max is normally a hyper dog and look at him here. He's sitting nicely on the foot of the bed. So I feel like they know, depending on the animal, though, some of them have springs between their ears. Some years ago, I, I heard about a book. It was written by a doctor in a hospital who 
focused on hospice, and it, it was about the cat mm-hmm. who knew when somebody was about to die, and this cat would go from one room to another, and what the cat would do is hop up on the bed and sort of cuddle with the patient. Mm-hmm. I heard about that. I'd be like, get that cat away from me. Yeah, well, I'd do it with a dog, but never with a cat, but that's just personal preference. Well, plus I wouldn't want to die, so there's that. I don't like cats uh, either. <laughs> I, don't, I, I just hope it's like going to sleep and not waking up. Well, you know, it's funny that you'd say that. Uh, I wanted to talk about having a quote-unquote good death. Um, and so in the medical profession, we talk about good deaths. And so with a good death, you do kind of just go to sleep. Uh, you know, we give you the right meds for pain control. It slows your breathing to an acceptable rate, you know, where it doesn't feel like you're struggling. And uh, most people with a gradual death, uh, you know, maybe the last few hours, they're seemingly unconscious and they just kind of drift away. It's not like in the movies where... One minute, you know, they're talking to you, and the next they keel over. But then again, it differs by diagnosis. So sometimes that can happen with heart. Mm-hmm. Well, when I see the cat up by my pillow, I'm going to start getting worried. <laughs> and I read this book. It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Doctor, The doctor didn't believe it. The nurses all told him, we got this cat that you're not going to believe. And he spent months in the hospital. And it wasn't only that the cat knew when, when patient number one was going to die, but then when patient number one died, the cat knew where to go mm-hmm. next. Well, they have animals, they say, that can smell cancer. So, you know, uh, yes. I, believe, I think it's, it's a possibility. You never know. Well, we know so little about this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that... that um, you said you had some other bullet points that you wanted to talk about. Oh, we did. Yeah, okay. uh, if that's okay. So yeah. I was going to talk about um, kind of the most important things, uh, especially if your loved one's being cared for by hospice. Uh, you know, you want to you wanna talk to them about what comfort means for your family member. And some of the big ones we talk about are uh, positioning. Um, so when you're asleep in your own bed and you're well, think about how many times you turn in the night. And so I think that um, if you think about someone who's unconscious and dying, helping reposition them maybe every one to two hours might be comfortable. And we do a lot of skin and mouth care. Oftentimes they're on oxygen, and so we want to definitely moisten their mouth. You'll see those little green sponges on a stick. So, And we put on um, chapstick on their lips, stuff like that. And we definitely, pain control is a big one. And then towards the very end, um, there's a drug we can give to dry up secretions. And so you'll hear people that they talk about the death rattle. And so in reality, the death rattle is, it's mostly an accumulation of secretions in the throat. And so when they're breathing, you hear that vibration. And so there's a drug we can give that dries that up. And, and I think oftentimes they're breathing it's a little more clear, and also I think it's for the family member. It makes them feel better because no one likes to sit there and hear that and think, oh, they're suffering, Gosh. you know, that kind of thing. And then, um, oh, and most importantly, I tell patients and well, family members that uh, it's good to give your loved one permission to die. Um, because I think a lot of family members are worried. Uh, once I was doing respite care uh, for a family and the patient had begun actively dying, and I, I really felt like she was holding on and... Uh, 
and they had been waiting for the granddaughter to arrive. And so when the granddaughter arrived in the middle of the night, uh, I, I told the, the unconscious woman, I said, you know, your granddaughter's here now. She's going to take care of your daughter. You can go. Go ahead and go. And because the daughter had already had this conversation and saying, mom, just let go. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. But she was crying, you know, and probably didn't sound fine to her mom. And sure enough, the woman, the woman died. And so and give them permission to go. Um, I know, you know, it's never, it's never going to be okay that this person you love is dying, but, uh, but they can't stay forever. And so it would be really selfless of the loved one to say, you know what, I know it's your time. It's okay. And then lastly, probably the five things that we say to say, um, you know, whether they're conscious or unconscious, uh, you want to say, you know, mom or dad, I forgive you for anything, you know, you might be worrying about that you did. And um, I would like you to forgive me for anything you might be holding on to. Um, I apologize for any pain or anything I could have caused you throughout the years. Um, thank you. Uh, goodbye. And I love you. And those are the things that later on when you're lying in bed, you think, oh, gosh, did I tell mom that? You know, even though over the years, you probably told her again and again. But, uh, you know, I think it gives people closure. I say those things in my books so many times mm-hmm. that I feel myself just repeating and repeating and repeating because you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because otherwise you're going to carry the weight of whoever died right on your shoulders for the rest of your life and you're not going to be able to live. Mm-hmm. And that's not the point. My my goal is, as I say, to lay them gently down and to let them die. And it's, it's so hard to do that. It's true. You don't want to let go. I think as a caregiver, we just, uh, it's reassurance and repetition. And so, you know, we end up saying a lot, you know, this is normal. Everything is progressing as it should. This is okay. It's okay. And I think for your listeners who maybe are thinking to themselves, you know, I didn't get to say one of those five things. It's okay. You know, you have to forgive yourself. They know. You know, if you were there at the bedside and you made that effort to be there, and even if you weren't at the bedside, your parents know. They loved you before you were even aware of them. Right. So be kind to yourself. I think that's a good place to take a break. We will be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the promised land. 
Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. My friend Emma Broussard, who's a nurse and has lots uh, deals with lots of hospice patients, and we we've been talking about things like signs, uh, normal signs where you know that the end is coming closer, and and what you have to say. Um, Emma, I want you to say that again. Some people just tune in, and I want you to say those four or five things again. Mm-hmm. So, I think um, these are kind of your goodbyes, but it also will help to give closure. So, the things are, um, you want to let them know, you know, forgive me for anything that I might have done, you know, to you in the past, and I forgive you. I want to apologize to you for any pain or, or hardship I've caused. Um, thank you. Uh, goodbye, and I love you. Thanks. And then you can really let them go. Mm-hmm. You Give don't, them permission to go. Mm-hmm. I, I always talk about the phrase rest in peace. Mm. And we all want our loved ones to rest in peace, but I then say, but they can't do it until this relationship is complete. Mm-hmm. You just can't do it. Um, sometimes you have a hard time forgiving people. Mm. Sometimes you have a hard time apologizing. Sometimes you have wounds that come from childhood. Uh, you know, sometimes it would take a year to list everything that you are upset about and you carry with you. But, uh, but thank you for, for reminding us of, of those things. Uh, mm-hmm. During the break, Emma and I were talking about um, families who get angry with each other. And Emma told me a not a wonderful story, but an interesting story about something that happened this morning. Go for it. Oh, well, I was just relating how, um, you know, a family was upset. And then even after the death, they continued to be upset with each other. And, and I wanted to shake them and say, you know, your mom wouldn't want this. You know, she would want you to be happy with one another. So... That's a hard thing. I think that, uh, like you said earlier, people are holding on to grudges, probably even from childhood. And so obviously that's not healthy. And if, and if you couldn't hash it out before your parent was on the deathbed, then, uh, it's, it, you know, dad being on the deathbed is not the time to do it. Um, and, and I think if you're angry with a loved one and uh, you want to have it out with them, you know, unfortunately, you might have missed your opportunity and that maybe now is the time to be the bigger person and let them go uh, and then hash out in therapy later. <laughs> therapy later. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people come to me sometimes with uh, this uh, hanging on to the memories 
that make them angry or guilty or feel badly about how they treated someone, I send them to the cemetery Hmm. where she or he is buried. That's why I don't like cremations, because when you cremate, there's no place to go. But when they're buried in a cemetery, that's where they are. There's something very mystical and mysterious about cemeteries. Mm -hmm. You look at that gravestone and you know that the spirit is still there. And so even at the cemetery, you can make peace. And I encourage people to do that. They think I'm crazy when I do that. (laughs) I sent a guy in New Jersey in... um, Pennsylvania on a two-hour ride because he wanted to make peace with his mother and now he was 70 and she died 40 years ago oh wow yeah so I mean one of my big things is time doesn't matter time means nothing Mm -hmm. it just passes it's what you do with the time that gives it its value it just it's neutral by itself so he came and he asked me How does he make peace with his mother? So I sent him to the cemetery. And I told him to say those very things that you just said. Or you could write a letter. So if they've been cremated or you don't want to drive, you know, three hours or two hours, write a letter. There are other ways to do it. I've told people about writing letters and then reading it not to the person that it's directed at, but reading it to your best friend and getting rid of your emotions that way or, or, or completing your emotions. He went to the cemetery. I did. Uh, he did. Oh, he did. I, oh, I, went, I was thinking of the time we went there for our, uh, our meeting. It was a very calming place. You know, a lot of people are creeped out by death, and I think that's normal because they're afraid. But uh, I think that, uh, well, just to go off on a tangent, but I have a lot of patients are sick and they'll tell me I'm afraid to die and I and if they're religious then they feel guilt they feel like they're they're not you know maybe they don't have enough faith that kind of thing but but I think that a lot of people you're just having a normal human reaction to an unknown and so it's normal to be afraid Um, but I think when you get close to the end you know you'll be so out of it if you have a good death that that part won't really matter the fear you know you'll be sleeping Right. Emma referred to going to the cemetery. Um, She's in a class of mine, and we went to a death cafe, and we've had a guest on the show who is very involved in death cafes. So I took my class to the cemetery. Where else do you have a death cafe? And you go to the cemetery, and we were the only, there were 11 of us, 12 of us, including myself, and the leader of the death cafe, and there was nobody else there, which was, I guess, all right. Uh, And we talked about different aspects of death, and how do you feel about your death, and what do you want your death to look like, and what do you believe about what happens to your soul after you die, and and, uh, things, questions that have no right or wrong answer. Emma, what do you think happens to your soul after you die? Oh, man. You know, I was just discussing this with my husband. And, and you would think, you know, given I've been coming to synagogue with you and, and learning from you, you know, Judaism 
has kind of a liberal, in any case, I'll stop stalling. So I kind of have this feeling that all that energy you have built up, it's kinetic energy, the heart keeps beating, you know, it's it's scientific. So even after you have brain death, the heart will continue to, to quiver or move sometimes. And But when, they, when they're gone, when they die, you can feel them leave the room. Uh, all that energy goes somewhere. And so for me, it's almost like I haven't quite made up my mind yet, but I, you can sense when someone leaves the room. And, and so it's like, I don't know if you're everywhere and you become, you know, kind of omnipotent or, or what, or, or depending on what you, on what your ideal is, maybe of heaven, um, but being more scientific minded, I struggle with that. And, but once I sat with enough people who were dying, uh, I didn't fear death anymore because all of that goes somewhere it has to. That's what people who I used to call woo-woo people <laughs> try to have always trying to convince me. They say that energy never disappears. Right, it's a law of physics. It just changes. Whatever. So <laughs> I don't really care about physics. I care about ethics. Right. So, so that when you die, the um Part of you sticks around. Now, I interpret all that to, to mean that when you die, your memories and the lessons that you've taught in your life stick around. I mean, I remember my bubby, my grandmother, I can see her. And I can close my eyes anytime I want. And I, can, I can bring her up in my, in my eyes sight, you know. And... Um, She's in heaven because of all the wonderful things she did for me and, and how much we did for each other. And I still remember that when she was dying in the hospital, some of my family members uh, invited me to come to the hospital and sing Jewish melodies and prayers for her, to her, because they knew how much I loved to do that and they knew how much she loved to hear those. She was a very orthodox woman and she was at Shul every Shabbat. And so I remember many times I would go to her room, I would take her hand. She was sometimes more conscious than other times. I didn't care. And I just started chanting parts of the service. And the nurses told me that they could feel her energy sort of calming down. Mm-hmm. It worked for her, I guess it works for everybody, but I don't, I don't, see, nobody's come back after 30 days mm-hmm. to tell us what's going on. Right. To be a little humorous about it, we haven't gotten tweets from heaven or hell. We haven't gotten any Facebook posts. Nobody's emailed anybody. So I believe the scientific part of my brain believes that therefore there is no physical place. On the other hand, if somebody says to me, I'm going to die and be back with my mommy, I will support them 100%. Because what do I know? Yeah, who are we to say? Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I never try to, you know, push one way or the other. Yeah. I know. And so I just don't know. And and if I don't know, it makes me feel good that I don't know because I can be supportive. And for me, at the end of your life, uh, comfort is more important than truth. Absolutely. 
I and agree completely. Being in the room with people and families and all that. Mm-hmm. Just let them know, you know, what they want to hear. Unless, as long as I'm not lying to them about something medical, then, uh, then yeah, you know, whatever they believe in is okay with me. That's right. Um, I've done religious um, services, sort of, in the rooms when after they die, and the family asks me. Uh, to do a little service and I you know don't want to tell them I can't I don't know any religious services that aren't mine so I make it up mm-hmm. which gives them comfort and I, I have them hold hands and you know in the case of a Jewish family who goes I'll say the Shema with them and I'll and I'll bless them I'll put my hands on their um, heads on their you know, and I will give them the priestly benediction and everybody's crying and that's a good thing because it's got to come out and I want it to come out and I'm glad that prayer can bring out that emotion because they need to do that. It's always so interesting. I think that most people are feeling less scared of death than 20 years ago, the 40 years ago, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you do you see that? Do you sense that? Uh, I think that with the rise of hospice, uh, where deaths are now occurring, you know, they're they're less sterilized. A lot of people are able to die at home, uh, surrounded by family, and and so you know, in the past. You know, a few decades, we, we've seen death occur pretty much exclusively uh, in hospitals or in ambulances. And so the more removed death becomes, the scarier it is for the average person. And so so I think now that hospice is becoming more common, um, people are becoming more comfortable with the idea and hospice nurses, you know, it's their job to kind of guide the family. Sure. So, mm-hmm. I, so I don't know. You know, I see people who are really afraid. And I and I hesitate to make blanket statements since clearly I've only met a small percentage of the population. Yeah. I know what you mean. I go and visit when I'm called, and often I don't know these people, and I don't know the family. So, well, we are coming to the end of our show, Emma, and I want to thank you for all the knowledge and wisdom you have shared with us. Absolutely. Um, I know that that people have enjoyed listening to you. Uh, by the way, if anybody wants to uh, respond, you can send me an email at rabbimel at griefok.com. Rabbimel at griefok.com. Next week, I'm not going to be here, and so we're going to have an encore presentation with my friend Caitlin Doughty, who is a rising star in the funeral industry. She believes in, uh, used to be weird, but not anymore. You prepare the body at home, you bury them in the backyard, and other kinds of things that 10 years ago we would not have ever believed or certainly not wanted. So thank you everybody for listening. And I'll see you in two weeks. And Emma, I'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night.
Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week. 